Welcome to Final Fantasy Weekly. I'm Drew Creaseman. And I'm Ira Creaseman. And on this episode, we wrap up our conversation on Final Fantasy VII for now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Technically, as I think we've said before, we will get back to compilation of. Uh, We've decided to do those things in true chronological order. So we'll get back to each one of those as they came out as we're moving through the historical timeline of Final Fantasy in general. On that note, we said we would talk about Final Fantasy IV after years, and then we never did. Uh, <laughs> so it, it perhaps it was our plan all along uh-huh. to simply talk about uh, after years when it comes out in the real world chronology as opposed to right after Final Fantasy IV. Yeah, so we'll stick to that general idea until the next time we feel like breaking our rules. Uh, All right, for this episode, like I said, we're going to kind of wrap up the big questions and big themes and do the closest thing that we really do to reviewing these games as we look at them through the context of this kind of rubric that we came up with, I really say, I, this is on me. You're, you're less inclined to do these types of things, but I, I want to get it as close to ranking or rating or reviewing as we can. But by looking at these games as pieces of art under five broad categories, flaws, cultural impact, their craft as a piece of art, their impact on the industry and the quality of their cultural commentary. And so you know, as we kind of have this conversation, we'll keep hitting back and forth on those. Some of these we've really discussed. This is the 20th episode we've done right. on FF7. I think we did in the mid-teens on 6. And so that in and of itself tells a story. Let's start with number 5, though, Ira, because we've talked about this a lot throughout the game. Its flaws are numerous, especially, you know, when compared to the game that just came before it, which is a very, very tight experience. I would say 9 and 10 have fewer flaws. We'll talk about 8 <laughs> when we get to this category again. This will be interesting. But we we talked about them as we went throughout the game. Okay, it's Sith as a character. That's a pretty big one to have one of your main cast of characters be that oddly handled we'll say at the very least the entire huge materia plot line Uh, we've talked about elements of the quote adultness that were very 90s and have not aged well many games that really were kind of fun at the time almost for the novelty and have not aged well there are a lot of things the, the polygon character models. I could go on and on. Remember when we talked about flaws in six, we were like the Coliseum? Right. And exactly. the list. Yeah, yeah. There are a lot of things about this that I, I think you said it well. Have not aged well. And so maybe our flaws in hindsight. But we've also talked about we like it when these games take big swings. And so sometimes when you take several big swings, you're going to have several flaws. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons why I always like to start with and not spend all that much time on flaws and why I place it at the bottom of the list and why I often get frustrated because I feel like so many reviews of whether it's movies or video games or whatever tend to focus on flaws. And I hear this all the time when we're on Twitter talking to people about the things we love about Final Fantasy 15 or 7 Remake. People will come at me with, 
hey, you got to admit all the flaws, which is just a strange conversation to me because everything has flaws. And so pointing out that anything has flaws seems pointless. <laughs> it seems baked into the conversation to me. But to your point, which I think is actually the more important one, it's like all great art is flawed. The point is, were the risks outweighed or, or not the risks outweighed? Were the risks worth it? Was the, the little things inside of this that didn't work, did they derail the experience? And clearly not in the case of Final Fantasy VII because of everything else that we're going to get back into. Yeah. So that brings us to number four on the list, the cultural impact, which was massive. And by cultural impact, what we mean is are people still buying and talking about Final Fantasy VII stuff today? Right. Do people cosplay? Do people listen to and recreate and reproduce the music and the stories, and fan art, and fan fiction? And the answer to that question is overwhelmingly yes. If you were ranking the games in the series based on this one, Final Fantasy VII would clearly have had the most cultural impact of any of the games in the series. Right, which I think is exemplified and perhaps overlaps with one of our other uh, categories uh, of industry impact, right? Because it got a remake of sorts. It's going to get that, oh, I can't remember what it's called, but it's sort of another sort of remake. It, it got uh, Last Order and it got Dirge of Cerberus and it got that whole uh, compilation of. It's, it's massive and it keeps getting added onto because of how beloved it is, uh, which it, which speaks to the cultural impact. Yeah, it, you know, those two things really are intertwined in this game's case, because usually, you know, an in industry impact, we're also talking about, you know, did other games borrow? Like we started seeing a lot more spiky headed heroes and final battles with Latin chorus music in it and characters with oversized swords and which was an anime thing before it was a Final Fantasy thing but it became more of a JRPG thing because of 7 and even just and we've talked about this throughout the popularizing of JRPGs in the West uh, which ended up making them a whole lot of money so yeah you know the over 10 million copies sold and the fact that it kind of, yeah, it goes both ways. It's so beloved that they had to make more of it and they keep making more of it because it's so beloved and they're not going to stop anytime soon. They've got the rest of this remake to go. And yeah, I mean, these are the, it really is just one of the most beloved games in the history of gaming. And so they, this one scores off the charts. Again, you don't have to, you know, we'll get back to this. You don't have to pick a favorite Final Fantasy you really, really don't. But if you're trying to measure some of these things that are a little bit more objective, this one changed everything. And again, if you had to rank them, if you could only give every game in the series, you know, first place for industry impact and cultural impact, Final Fantasy VII is in first on both of those. Continuing for a moment on the theme of industry impact, I feel like uh, Final Fantasy VII 
went a long way toward these big cinematic cutscenes, right? The the FMVs we called them at the time. Right. So, you know, we we transitioned from the blocky polygonal figures into these full motion videos. I'm pretty sure that's what that stands for. Yeah. Where where we just get this cutscene of here's the thing that happens next. And I didn't see a lot of that before Final Fantasy VII and the PS1. It's also worth noting that, as you have mentioned, Final Fantasy VII really sold the first PlayStation, like explicitly in our case. But just in general, it made the PlayStation into a competitor in in the console wars where, I mean, we hadn't seen... No, we, I thought nobody would be able to break into the console. It was going to be Nintendo and Sega forever. forever. And then suddenly it's Nintendo and Sony and then eventually uh, Microsoft with the Xbox, right? So I feel like Final Fantasy VII was a big part in changing those console wars. Massive. It, yeah, it really did make Sony viable in the video game world. And all these years later, we're on the PlayStation 5 and who knows if we'd ever gotten there if not for the success of this game. And so, yeah, it's not just... And, and again, this isn't to put down... We love every game in this franchise. And, you know, this this is... A lot of it's outside of there. A lot of this is timing. It's why I've constantly compared Final Fantasy VII to the Beatles. Because when you have that kind of impact, it's just earth-shattering. It's groundbreaking. It changes the game. Uh, figuratively and, and literally here, right? And so it really isn't just the Final Fantasy that's had the biggest impact. It's, I, I think GameSpot once called it the second most important video game ever made after the original Super Mario Brothers. And if you are a person who believes in the power of video gaming as a vehicle for great storytelling, it's probably... Number one of all time, it's one of those pieces of art that just stands even outside of its medium in terms of its importance. As far as our categories remaining, crafted as art, we've talked a lot about brilliantly crafted, several flaws, lots of things that are good about it, some stuff that could be better. That's what the 19 episodes leading up to this were really about, (laughs) Uh, you know, diving into the graphics and the music and all of that stuff most of it phenomenal that's why it's done so well and before we get to our final conversations on the themes and cultural commentary i wanted to say this because i feel like you know as wrapping up all these other things impact on the industry and how well it's crafted and its impact on the culture and all of these things are usually what people talk about when they argue what's the greatest final fantasy of all time which I think can sometimes be a very interesting debate and can sometimes be an exceptionally irritating and fruitless debate, depending on how people are having it. But I started thinking about it differently as we were doing this show and stopped thinking about all of the games as completely separate things. And and this is a little bit cheating because six and seven are both so near and dear, especially to my heart. In, in my formative years, I actually think that what I would argue is that Square's greatest accomplishment, not Square's greatest game, because I don't think I could ever even say that, but I do think Square's greatest accomplishment was producing Final Fantasies 6 and 7 back to back. I don't 
know that we've ever seen anything quite like that in our lifetimes of artistic expression, honestly. Like, think about what those two things are. One is this steampunk fantasy, closer to medieval story with a huge cast of characters that's very linear and focused and driven and easy to follow that gives you this beautiful ending that wraps everything up in a nice neat bow for you and was the perfect send-off for 2D gaming. And then the next is this enormous mess with a much smaller cast of characters and themes going everywhere and a non-linear story and unreliable narrators and like I said, way more flaws and all kinds of, and and an ending that couldn't be much more ambiguous. We'll get back to that. And it's much more science fiction and, and Blade Runnery and modern and there's cars and now it's on the different platform and people are swearing. And these two things still have this core center that make them a part of a a family that we're all a part of. And how they accomplished two of the greatest games in the history of video gaming back to back and made them that different from each other? That is mind-blowing that the same group of people were able to create those two things. Yeah. So now let's jump into number one on your list, cultural commentary. Uh, And let's start with analyzing our villains. You were just talking about both Final Fantasy VI and VII, so let's talk about Kefka and Sephiroth. Sephiroth is a really interesting character, and I wonder if he is maybe a sympathetic villain. Because I feel like Kefka is not. Kefka is awful from the beginning. Right. He's sort of comic relief awful at the beginning, but he, he slowly grows into this real threat who is just destroying for the sake of destruction. But Sephiroth is coming from a different place. You know, he doesn't know who his parents are. Presumably, he, he thinks he's an orphan. And then he gets drawn into this whole corporate warfare thing, and then eventually he uncovers these notes, and then it's, oh my God, my mother was an ancient, and I am heir to the planet. So he has this mental break. But, you know, lots of people suffer trauma and almost none of them become supervillains. Now, this is a, it's a fictional world. So I, I don't want to put too much of the, uh, well, he should have gone to therapy on him because maybe that's not a thing that happens in this fictional world. So when we're talking about cultural commentary, we're, we're talking about the big themes here, right? So I think one of the big themes is, is a victim of this kind of human experimentation, given some leeway, are we understanding of the way things went down with him? Right. And, you know, we, we've had this conversation before, and I think talked a little bit about the Joaquin Phoenix Joker movie, right? Because sure. that was a big conversation around that. And I feel a little bit caught in between here because I fully understand 
where people are coming from when they want to say things like Joker in that movie or Sephiroth in this game are responsible for their actions. And if you're going to murder people, you know, does the rest of society have to stand up and be responsible for your actions? And I totally get that. I think that there's a difficult kind of false dichotomy going on there, though. Uh, I'll do what you do with the trolley problem here and sort of refuse to play the game of sympathetic villain, right? Because I feel like that term is part of the problem. It, it seems to suggest that we still feel sorry for Sephiroth or Joker as they're out there murdering people or that we're somehow excusing their behavior if we say, you know, if things had gone differently, maybe this person wouldn't have turned out this way. And I get that's a very challenging and difficult thing to say because it does sound like you're moving some of the responsibility from that person onto, quote unquote, society, right? Mm -hmm. But I had somebody put it very interestingly to me on Twitter. And I wish I could find her handle and I, and I just couldn't. So I apologize for that. But I do think there's this flip side of pointing the finger and blaming Sephiroth entirely for a mental breakdown where he didn't have anybody to turn to. And when you right. make it all about personal choice, and I think far too many people do this and say, well, Cloud did what we should all do and became a hero. And Sephiroth is the example of what you shouldn't do when faced with personal trauma, and that's take it out on others. Because Cloud had Tifa, mm -hmm. and Aerith, and Barrett kick his ass if he needed to. Right. And Sephiroth's family, Hojo, Gast, Kretzia, and then Shinra. And I do think that there's a valuable lesson to be learned in that as well. In saying, if you don't take care of people, bad things can happen. And know that, uh, again, I, I think we can hold those thoughts in our head at the same time, right? People are responsible for those their own actions. But some of those actions include being a mother who doesn't stop or engages in experimentation on her unborn child, yeah, you bear some responsibility for what becomes of that child and, and what he ends up doing in the world. Or when you lie to people and you make their reality, when you gaslight someone as heavily as Sephiroth was gaslit for his entire life, not knowing who he was, yeah, you bear some responsibility for the mental break. And I, and I do think we all bear some responsibility for the mental health of all of the people around us. And yes, there's a line to draw somewhere there, but that's why these are difficult, complicated, nuanced questions. It's one of the things that makes final fantasy seven. So great is that, you know, I do think there's something to be said for maybe Sephiroth doesn't come close to destroying the world and creating this entire crisis. If, the greed of a small group of individuals just hadn't been there. So the more I read about it, the more I 
am in favor of, I'm not sure abolishing prisons is quite the, the phrase I want to use, but that prisons don't do us much, if any, good. Certainly I'm against the death penalty. I think that is absolutely immoral. You know, So along some of those same lines, if our society was better at taking care of people, if our society was better at helping those who have suffered trauma rather than waiting for them to commit crimes and punishing them, we would need fewer prisons, if not none at all. Right. And I kind of feel like that's part of what Sephiroth's story is. Yeah. It, like, like you said, if he had had a Tifa or a Barrett or a Nanaki or even a Yuffie and a Vincent and a maybe not a Kit Sith, but you know, if he had <laughs> had those other people in his lives, if he had had an RPG hero family around him, he might have become the hero. He might have been the one to stand up to President Shinra. He might have been the one to remove the alien parasite of Genova. Sure. So whether it was his personal choices that drove him down that path, or whether it was society, or whether it was almost more likely a, a combination of the two, right? he ends up being the villain, and society at large, or perhaps... I think Final Fantasy is, is more of the mind, or Final Fantasy VII is more of the vein of the corrupt corporate fascist nature of Shinra is largely to blame for what Sephiroth becomes. Right, and, and representative of a corrupt system and ultimately society, even though not everyone in the society participates right obviously wutai being an active not participant for a long time there but most of the places operating you know needing the mako energy and so they shinra really represents humanity in an ugly ugly way which gets us back to that last big question that we did talk about but there were a few leaves yet to be turned over sorry for the nature pun <laughs> but the is humanity worth saving? Question. And does right. humanity survive? Question. We, we talked a lot about it at the end, but I realized that we hadn't connected two themes quite in the way I wanted to. And I think it's the biggest reason why I end up coming down on the side of either A, you do save the world and humanity persists, though Midgar does not, but like, Humanity persists in a more sort of close to nature kind of way. Or B, we see Aerith's face at the end again because she has reset the timeline and sent us into remake. Sure, yeah. <laughs> those are those are my two favorite theories. But, you know, and and I actually we had some people hit us up on Twitter about some of their theories about humanity ending, including the laughter interpretation being the laughter of the planet. Yeah. That I like that cool. one a lot. That's a good one. Because if we can hear the cries of the planet, That's why right. should we not also be able to hear the laughter of the planet? That's great. Yeah. That was a, I really, really liked that. But the biggest reason I think I come down on the side of humanity is saved is because you combine the two themes about the spiritualism and nature and the life and death stuff. And it had been a while since we had talked about Hironobu Sakaguchi and this story coming 
after the death of his mother and him. And while I don't like to talk about a lot of times the behind the scenes quotes from creators, because the art is how we all interpret it. And, you know, death of the author, big fan of the, the whole idea, right? Just, which is macabre phrase to use considering the conversation. Goodness. But Hironobu Sakaguchi has talked about, you know, him dealing with these spiritual ideas and that life goes on even after death, right? And that is why I feel like Aerith is still influencing events from the live stream. And of course, and, and I believed this before Advent Children and, and some of the sort of side material would lean really hard into it and basically confirm things like, yeah, Zack and Aerith are doing stuff from the live stream or whatever. But to just seeing her face there at the end always seemed to me like the big punctuation mark, the big exclamation point on Hironobu Sakaguchi's ultimate point of Final Fantasy VII, which is that your loved ones will leave you. They will Their, their physical body will leave this earth, but their impact remains. Aerith saves the world from beyond. Her living legacy, which was a phrase that would get a lot more play in things like Crisis Core and Advent Children, but Aerith's legacy, it doesn't feel as complete to me. If humanity is wiped out, then ultimately Aerith's sacrifice was for nothing. And... You know, her, her legacy doesn't live on. Nobody's legacies live on. Unless, I guess they do in the life stream of the planet. So maybe they still can. But again, that's my interpretation is that she saved us all. And that's Sakaguchi's way of saying, my mother is my savior, even if she's not here. And I think that's really beautiful. So I'm going to make sure I said that. The last bit of cultural commentary I want to talk about is balance. Because it's not necessarily that energy consumption is bad. It's that overconsumption is bad, right? Yeah. And so finding that, that balance between what we can and cannot do and the space in which we live, because you're going to make an impact. No, no matter where you live, you got to clear some space and put up some shelter and eat some food and drink some water and, and make some trash and so on and so forth. And so I, I don't feel like Final Fantasy VII is saying you can't do any of that. You can't have your video games. You can't watch TV. You can't consume energy. Because otherwise, I mean, you're still playing that video game, right? On a CD <laughs> right, that would made be pretty out of, hypocritical. Yeah. Right, exactly. So I guess it's, it's more about removing the parasitic nature of consumption, right? Because Genova is the parasite. Genova is feeding off the planet and that's it, contributing nothing. So how do you contribute something to find some kind of a balance? Right. And then, of course, Final Fantasy VII does that really bold thing of asking all these questions and then providing zero answers, Yeah, uh, which is really cool. Or, or maybe like point two answers, maybe. Uh, <laughs> so I don't have any... Uh, I, I... You also don't have all the answers? Exactly. <laughs> I have no conclusion to this particular line of thought, except to say that I think that seeking that balance, whatever it may be, is considered important by Final Fantasy VII, and I think it's important too. Yeah, and not to belabor the point, but that just reminds me again of 
the comparisons to Final Fantasy VI. And I'll prime us for the next couple and say, and this all gets shaken up again completely with Tactics and Eight that go totally different directions. But with Six having been such a, a straightforward, you know, you're talking about Final Fantasy VII doesn't give you all the answers. In fact, it gives you very few. It, it asks a whole bunch of questions. You know, Final Fantasy VI, I feel like, has got some things to say pretty straightforwardly. And, you know, we talked about it, you know, whether it's, hey, stoic men can love their families too, or you got to stand up to fascism because empires are hell and war is hell and you can't treat beings who are not like you, like chattel, right? There are these very clear, there are big ideas in Final Fantasy VI, but they're also a bit more clear cut. Fascism is bad. Evil, insane, nihilistic clowns are bad. <laughs> Experimenting on, and there's some of that in Seven as well. There, there's a lot of the bad science is, is bad. Don't do bad science. Seven, uh, or Final Fantasy in general, loves to remind us, don't do bad science. Exactly. Which is a good lesson. Yes. To be reminded of over and over again. But I, again, I cannot get over the just the differences in approach between six and seven and how effective they are. And I think part of it is because you and I have consumed quite a bit of fantasy and science fiction, again, with speculative fiction over the years. Less horror, which does fit into the genre, by the way, and you and I aren't as big into that, but still some vampire stuff, some universal monsters, you know, we're here and there. And there's some really, really great stuff out there, absolutely, to be sure. But again, in the same franchise, you're more into Doctor Who than I am. They'll shift things up when they change Doctors. My fiance is getting really into it now as good. well, so I'm learning good, more good. and more. Yeah, she's you, you got another one. You people have, <laughs> have landed one further, which means I'm not far behind. Right. But that, that seems maybe similar to me or different versions of Star Trek. But again, I feel like you're getting very similar feels. Final Fantasy VI and VII are just these, they feel so different and yet have that. And that's what it is. That's the question that I think even in games like 13 and 15, and for some people in modern times, they're still looking to answer. And that we've talked about loosely, but never really dive deep into on this show so far is, what makes Final Fantasy Final Fantasy? Right? Yeah. Like, what is that thing in, in, in the middle and its heart and its core and its gut, that feeling it gives you? It's not about anything that you can really describe. And when you look at these two games, it would be very easy to convince a third party that they were made by completely different teams of people. For, from every angle, from the music and the art the gameplay would give it away, maybe. If you yeah. saw the battle systems. Yeah. You'd be like, oh, okay, that's that's similar to that thing. Okay, I see this. But it, it is remarkable to me. So yeah, I love... that. That's almost an extra meta theme of Final Fantasy VII, right? Is that it was so bold in its storytelling mechanisms and presentation to just say, we are going to wow the hell out of you and show you something unlike anything you've ever seen before. And then we're going to let you sit with it and just hope that people get it. And it turns out 
people got it. You cannot competently tell the history of video games without mentioning Final Fantasy VII. Before it, games were largely seen, at least in the mainstream, as a toy for children. After it, gaming became the home to some of the most sweeping and engaging stories found in any medium. Final Fantasy VII accomplished this task by bringing a unique flavor of sights and soundscapes, complex plots and characters, and interlocking themes. Class warfare, energy exploitation and dependency, self-identity, post-traumatic stress, just following orders, free will, and even the ultimate question about whether humanity itself is good for the planet. We are asked to struggle with these questions and given very few answers. In arguably more ways than any other, Final Fantasy VII is a challenge to both its creators and its audience. From Blade Runner to Star Wars to anime classics like Akira, to many multimedia projects that Final Fantasy itself would inspire, there are other stories that strike similarities to this one, and yet somehow nothing quite like it. Summarizing what Final Fantasy VII is and what it means to so many, and why, is nearly impossible, even when spending 20-some episodes of a podcast trying to do so. There is always something more to discover and discuss about this place unlike any other. It's perfectly appropriate, though, for this story so steeped in themes of memory. Millions of people in the real world would return to it year after year and swim in nostalgia so fondly that we collectively demanded to see and hear and feel it all again. Remade. Final Fantasy VII's characters each remind us of something. Aerith is a reminder that our loved ones are never really gone. That a life filled with enthusiastic love and exuberant friendship leaves a lasting legacy. She is a reminder to always be kind to those around you. And that putting others first isn't a sign of weakness, it's strength. She is a reminder that our past is important, as is our future, and that nothing can be promised if we aren't all stewards of the planet and of each other. Barrett is a reminder that leadership and fatherhood take all kinds of forms, and taking action means taking responsibility for that action. He is a reminder that hard choices come with hard consequences, but that we still have to make them every single day if we want to live in a just world. Nanaki is a reminder that the truth can set you free. That knowing your past and coming to terms with where you came from can help create and choose a new family to fight for. He is a reminder that the planet is big enough for all kinds of beautiful creatures. Sid reminds us it is never too late to chase those big dreams. Or apologize for being an unrelenting asshole. <laughs> also, always have an escape hatch! 
Vincent reminds us that the shadows of the past can be long and haunting, and that facing them can bring closure. He's a reminder that everyone is fighting their own personal battles, and that most of us only see the person on the outside, and not the monster underneath. Kate Sith reminds us that fortune-telling is dicey business at best, and if you're going to be a spy for the good guys, be sure to tell the good guys. <laughs> Maybe he'll do better next time. Yeah. Yuffie is a child of a war-torn land, pulled at by tradition and pushing for the future. She is a reminder that balancing the two is difficult at best. And honestly, minus the kleptomania, we could all be a little bit more like Yuffie. Tifa is a reminder that it's okay to be more than one thing. Bartender and activist. Pianist and badass that to help others heal can sometimes heal oneself. She shows us the true meaning of companionship and does so without giving an inch of her own agency. Cloud is a reminder that no matter what the world has done to you, you are enough. You are not a failure, even if you have failed. If you accept and believe in your true self and your true friends, and let them believe in you. You can overcome anything. He is an embodiment of the power of the mind and soul to both create and feel pain and to heal so profoundly that you can heal the entire world. There is no best Final Fantasy. They all carry a unique legacy and quality. And whatever your favorite Final Fantasy is, comes down to personal preference and experience. But no fair study of history, nor time spent with this classic, will lead to any other conclusion than that Final Fantasy VII is the most impactful game in the history of the franchise, and one of the most important pieces of art in the history of video games. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening, and thank you to everyone who's reached out to us. Feel free to let us know what we missed, got wrong, or should have mentioned by finding us on Twitter at FFWeeklyPod, or leaving a comment right here on the Patreon page at patreon.com slash FFWeekly. If you are looking for more Final Fantasy content, more video game content, a bunch of podcasts on MCU and comic book movies, my music, which does include some covers of Final Fantasy songs. I've got Eyes on Me and Melodies of Life both up there, just on acoustic guitar. A whole bunch of fun stuff we're doing over at patreon.com slash DC Productions. Would appreciate you, if you have the means, checking that out. Uh, a lot of free content on there as well. Be sure to join us next time when we count down the top 10 intros in the history of Final Fantasy.